Welcome to episode nine of Podcast Payoffs. My name is Gord Vickman here with the founder of Strategic Coach, Dan Sullivan. Dan, having a good day? Yeah, this great day. And we're just coming off a previous podcast where we got to the end of it. And Gord, you reminded us that we didn't follow any of our strategies for actually doing <laughs> the last one. I have and a fast filter here, which we had laid out to prepare the previous show. And then we started talking about improvisation and surprising each other. And then we just ended up improvising the entire show. Yes, but I had read your two fast filter. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Strategic Coach, the Strategic Coach consists of thinking tools. And so we have, going back 30 years, we have hundreds of different ways of thinking and getting your thinking kind of prepared and warmed up and flexible before you actually go into a situation where you don't have to worry about what happens in the situation because you've already prepared your thinking for the situation. So even though we didn't follow the fast filter, and I should say the fast filter simply asks you what's the project, what's the best result that can come from this project, what's the worst result if you don't do it the way it should be, and then what would be five measurements that you had been successful, you know, that you could say at the end, yep, we did this, we did this, we did this. This is one of my two or three go-to thinking processes before I go into a podcast, before I go into a video, before I do a new workshop, before I have any kind of meeting. I always go through, you know, what's the project here because my life is just created out of projects. And then what's the best possible result? And I visualize it. It's like I'm rehearsing what the best possible result and what's the worst possible result that I don't want to go anywhere near. And then, you know, what are my benchmarks? What are my measuring sticks for we really did a good job at the end of it? I would say that last podcast series, it actually was above what I was expecting because we got on a new idea and we just developed the new idea as good improv partners yeah. back and forth between it. Just fun to yeah. say yes and yeah. see where it goes. And further to the impact filter, if you are, as Dan mentioned, new to strategic coach and you're curious about the impact filter, or you want to get a copy of the ebook, The Extraordinary Impact Filter, just head on over to strategiccoach.com, click store, and you can get your copy of the ebook or the hard copy. It's available for you to have. And if you get that, there's also a two-hour audio and there's a 45-minute video mm -hmm. and then a scorecard of the right kind of mindsets that you have to have to take maximum advantage of the impact filter. Well, that's a great segue into this episode of Podcast Payoffs because one of the things that comes up a lot when we do webinars, Ask Dan webinars, and the questions that come in through the podcast website is the subject of habits. The subject of habits is really exploding lately. You can go to any of the, you know, quote unquote, self-help sections of any bookstore or online. There seems to be a limitless amount of guides to creating better habits and getting rid of bad habits, getting more good habits and setting everything up. And people want to know about your habits, Dan. So I was thinking to link this back to podcast, the winning habits in the new media age. So Strategic Coach very recently just eclipsed the 30th year. And things are a lot different now in terms of how you're marketing Strategic Coach in the age of new media as mm -hmm. opposed to how it used to be. So what was it like when you started? How were you getting the word out to let people know that you were now going to be doing workshop coaching as opposed to one-on-one? -on -one? Because you were essentially starting from scratch. You were a one-on-one -on -one coach. You wanted to build a workshop model. So you can stand on a balcony and scream it from a rooftop if you'd like, but you're not going to get the people's ears that you're actually looking for. So how did you go about building that? 
Well, first of all, I had about 40 clients who were one-on-one clients, and I had, you know, habituated them, since we're using the word have, I had habituated them to doing annual plans. So it would be based on today's date a year from now, and what are the results that you're going to have, and then punctuating the year with uh, 90-day action, you know, decision-making achievement. And then if you did four good quarters where you took apart the one-year goal and then you gave yourself a chance just to focus on certain improvements every quarter, I would say if they were serious about it and they stuck with it, they usually came in at about 150% of what they thought they were going to achieve. And it was just a fact of deciding what was really important, deciding what time was really important, and then just staying focused. And I was the coach who kept them on track. I simplified it in terms of it wasn't 20 things, it was five things. It wasn't achieving everything. It was achieving things that a year from now, if this is achieved, it's a great year. Mm -hmm. And getting them real clear on what that would be, because it's not the type of thinking that people unaided will actually do inside their head. They have sort of bumper sticker goals or they have t-shirt slogan goals you know i'm going to have a better relationship a year from now and by the time they were finished with me that was going to consist of 15 dates with their wife over the next 365 days and the dates were in the calendar and the dates were for this and this and this and this and this and i said yeah you can have all the wishes and the slogans about a better relationship but it actually shows up in terms of specific times when you're actually going to spend that. So I I take what are just general thoughts and I break them down into very specific measurable targets where it's got a number attached to it or it's got an event attached to it. So there's clear-cut proof that you did it if you did it and you didn't do it if you didn't do it. You know, So measurability is really part of what we do here at Coach. And I think that as far as 1989, when we started the program and we switched over, so I just targeted the individual clients that I'd had experience with over, let's say, the last two-year period. And I said, now I'm going to go to a workshop setting. Some of the structures that we've developed one-on-one will be the foundation for that. And at about 40, I would say I had 15 right away. Mm-hmm. I had 15 right away. So I didn't start with nothing. I started with people And then I started really working the referrals because they were doing it on faith that being in a group with other people was going to be as valuable as doing one-on-one coaching. And it was faith. I mean, they trusted in me and they'd had good results. So they trusted me. And about another 15 out of the 40, so I got 15 out of the 40 and another 15 switched over within the first year. And there were real efficiencies to the workshop. You weren't spending... 120 days on 30 people, you were clustering, what I call clustering, you know. One film goer in one theater watching one film is not really a good movie business. No. But if you have 500 in a theater and you have 500 theaters, then you got yourself a business. So the workshop was a clustering, scaling mechanism. So It was word of mouth, essentially. And it was word of mouth. And then I had been in advertising, so I knew how to write a good one-page description of something. So you did direct mail, and you also did landline communication. And the big difference between 1989 and where we are right now is that in 1989, if you phoned someone on a landline, there was a 50% chance that they would pick up the phone and you could talk to them. Well, that's 
that's gone by the wayside over 30 years. So you had to adapt to the fact that there were lots of obstacles between. But still today, I mean, what's absolutely true is that nobody writes a check for the cost of our workshop unless there's a personal relationship of some kind mm -hmm. that actually triggered them. Now, that personal relationship could be someone they totally trust saying, I can guarantee you, if you write a check and go and do four workshops, you won't regret it. And they have enough credibility. So you're always looking at what is the fastest, easiest, most impactful way to get a result that gets you the checks the fastest and keeps the checks rolling as fast. I mean, that's <laughs> business is all about. And one habit that has really stood us well, that as far as who you're approaching as prospects in the marketplace, and I would say this, and we would talk about this in terms of the podcast, because the podcasts are really just a phenomenal breakthrough that wasn't even envisioned in 1989. I mean, it's a communication medium that I think snuck up and took the entire world by surprise. Nobody was talking about this medium. People were talking about you know, things that kind of are like software that would come in bite-sized modular piece and when the internet came along. You go, so there were a lot of predictions. The iPhone was envisioned. The, the Dick Tracy had... <laughs> I think his watch had a calculator and a microphone to call, well, his, call right his girlfriend. Well, not that, but it had a screen. It actually had a little Ooh. telephone screen, you know, and everything like that. So a lot of it was envisioned, but I think the podcast was so... Oh, people won't take this seriously. I mean, and you know this yourself because you were fully cognizant of the transfer from broadcast audio to podcast audio that I think this one snuck up on everybody. It did, and the first time they tried it, it didn't work because when podcasting first came out and people tried to co-opt the medium for business purposes, they were doing it all wrong. Here's what they thought. If it takes me six minutes to do a sales call and I can do whatever, 30 sales calls a day before I'm just totally zapped out and I want to go home and cry in the shower for a few hours, I'll just record one and I'll call it a podcast and I'll put it online and then everyone will race to listen to it and I will just sit back and the money will start pouring in. Well, it didn't work that way because people were using the medium wrong. and. What we're doing here at Strategic Coach and the podcasts that are done very well, the ones that people actually listen to and use to build brand awareness mm -hmm. and brand loyalty are just people providing value and giving insights and not asking for anything in return except for the time that you're investing to listen to mm -hmm. it. So it's not a hard sell where someone's screaming at you. And yes, there's always going to be things. If we're mentioning a tool here at Coach, we're going to tell you where to go get it because it would not be the wisest idea to talk about something and not let people know where they can go get it if they want to go get it. Or if there's an idea or a concept and we can link to it in the show notes, we're going to do that as well. So when people started to figure out, let's say maybe, I would say around like eight years ago, in that's the comfort zone, like seven to 10 years ago or somewhere around there is when people started to realize that providing value to the people that are listening to you and letting them make their own decisions and using it as a relationship builder, as opposed to a hard sell sledgehammer was widely more effective than what they had been doing previously because the old ways didn't work. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, we had seen kind of the role models who became great podcasters, and I would say off-hours radio interviews. It would be like nighttime radio, and you saw it a lot. I'm a lifelong jazz fan, CJRT here in Toronto, which at that time it was a university-affiliated radio station. 
and they would do late night, you know, and they were recorded. In some cases, it was live. In some cases, it was recorded. And they would do interviews, and these were late night DJs, and they were interviewing jazz musicians, and these are improv people on both sides. And I was really, really struck by the comfort level and just the relaxed level of the conversations. And it depended upon, you know, the comfort level of the musician who was being interviewed, but it also it depended a lot on the jazz knowledge, the jazz knowledge of the DJ. Mm-hmm. They just knew a lot about jazz. They weren't musicians for the most part. They weren't musicians, but they were big fans. You know, and they could ask all sorts of questions. You know, where did you appear? What kind of clubs have you been in? Which musicians have you played with? You know, what's your favorite as far as other composers and that? What have you done yourself? So it was all freewheeling, and I found that very, very comfortable, very comfortable. But it brings up, we've just met recently, and he's in Strategic Coach. Actually, I'm talking to him on a Zoom call because he's going to be a keynote speaker at a conference special conference that we have for our Free Zone Frontier community in February in Phoenix. And it's Chris Voss. And Chris, for a better part of 20 years, was one of the top hostage negotiators in kidnappings and terrorist situations for the FBI. And I was so struck by his approach. He has a real presence, Chris does. Yeah. Yeah, but regarding habits... And he talked about all his preparations, like he was a volunteer for suicide hotlines. How do you handle someone who says, I'm going to commit suicide in the next 10 minutes and actually get them to postpone it for a week? Uh, Do it tomorrow. uh, And then the likelihood that they would was greatly diminished. Yeah, yeah, well, and, you know, they told them that if you're still talking after 15 minutes, you're not being a service to our service and you're not being a service to the person on the other You're just creating a dependency, but you're not doing any good. Anyway, so he just has a total take on how people actually respond to human interaction that just struck me as really unique and really instructive. But one thing he said, and somebody asked him about, you know, the kind of preparation you have to do to deal with hostage takers, you know, where death is part of the reality. And he said, well, one thing I'll tell you right now is... Nobody rises to the occasion. You default to your highest level of previous preparation. Mm-hmm. And I think that puts the spotlight, Gord, right on what habit's all about. You practice and practice and practice and practice before you get into a situation so that regardless of what happens that you've already prepared. And that's one of my habits that I always have. I want to be completely loose and I want to be completely interactive and I want to be completely responsive in any situation when, you know, I'm in a live audience, you know, it might be a workshop room or I'm on a podcast with yourself or someone else that I feel totally prepared that regardless of what happens, I think I'm going to do just fine. But people want to know how regimented is your life truly from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to sleep? Are you structured and are you doing the same things every single day at the same time with, you know, almost religious regularity? Or do you give yourself leeway to kind of move things around and as long as the things get done? First of all, I'm a performer and I think I'm a front stage performer and I think I'm an improv performer. 
Okay, but that doesn't mean I haven't prepared in my mind for different eventualities. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the other thing is that I don't manage myself, and this is probably a real departure for most entrepreneurs, and that is that I'm not in control, I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'd like to make a distinction with that. Yeah, explain that for those who well, might not Well, for being get it. in charge means that I'm the one with the vision, so I'm putting a vision out in front. This is what we're going for. And charge sort of relates to the word energize or electrify. So my whole point as, you know, I'm an owner and strategic coach, and I'm considered, you know, a boss in strategic coach, but I try to not operate from there, but I am the person who has the most confidence and greatest clarity about where I think our company is going, along with Babs, my partner, but I'm the one with the clearest vision and the greatest confidence about where our workshop program is gonna go, You know Mm -hmm. where the intellectual capital is gonna go. So my job is to do a great job in getting people excited about the future. You know, mm-hmm. getting engaged with the future and actually put measurements to it to actually talk about that. So, as a result of that, my time is actually managed by other people. I have a scheduling manager, so I never schedule anything. I simply say what I want scheduled, and my scheduling manager works with other project managers and they work with you for the podcasts, and we have program materials have to be created. And we have a new book, a new book has to be created. So I have project managers and they manage the projects. I don't manage the projects and they slot me in where I'm one of the key players that has to contribute to the project, whether I'm speaking or whether I'm writing has to come from me or some visuals have to come from me. So the one thing that's a habit is that I never manage myself. I'm always managed by other people. Second habit I have, I don't do anything that's not structured in a project. Okay, so I don't have any processes. Like some people have weekly meetings. Every Monday at 9 o'clock we have a meeting. To me, that's worthless. Well, what if we don't have anything to talk about on Monday? We're going to go through an hour of talking just because it's a process. So I am totally project biased. It's a particular achievement in the future and it's gonna take this amount of time and it's gonna produce the amount of good. And if we do it right, we'll never do that project again. We'll do another project, a new project. So one of my habits is I never manage my time. My time is managed for me. And the other thing is everything is project-based. And the other thing is that my preparation is always that everybody else involved in the project knows exactly what the goal is and how the goal is going to be measured and why it's going to be good for everybody to be involved in this. One of the things that offshoots from the habits there, thanks for those, by the way, is people are asking, how do you stay focused on what's important instead of what's urgent? Because in my mind, I've always structured it as what's urgent is what other people have decided for you is important. And what's important is what you have decided is important. So how do you stay focused on what is important and not the constant stream and barrage of people who are asking for your time and begging for this and that and the other thing or want you to do something or participate in this? Is it just not having, you're in charge of that schedule, but you're not controlling the schedule? Is that how well, it works? The, first of all, because I have a scheduler and projects managers, they can't get to me. I said, it's worthless talking to me about this. Go and make a case to the person who's actually the manager. And then they'll come and they'll give me a series of requests that come in and I'll say, yes, no, no. But they have to tell me in writing 
what this is about and what would be required for my. So I've cut myself off from immediate contact from the world. I have a cell phone, but you don't have my cell phone number. I have an email address, but you don't have my email address. You can't phone me directly and talk to me, but you can talk to my scheduling manager and my scheduling manager will consult me and I say, yeah. And I never allow other people to phone me, I always phone them, and the reason being I'm always on time and sometimes they're not. So my sense is that just because people wanna connect with me doesn't really make me feel that I'm obligated to respond. I'll respond or I'll not respond, depending on what I do that. And I would say that about in the program, the entrepreneurs know that it's no use talking to Dan about anything directly, that it has to go through filters. And I've trained, you know, over 30 years, I've trained everybody. They said, I can't just invite you out to lunch, can I? And I said, if you're on the list of people who can invite me to lunch, yeah, you can. <laughs> but then you got to schedule with the manager to do this. You know this, Gord, because you were part of that industry, the entertainment industry. The entertainers don't manage their time. They don't manage their activities. No. You know, like sports is part of entertainment. The players don't manage anything. They play. So you got to make a decision between playing or managing the play, mm -hmm. but you can't do both. And my feeling is I just want to play in certain types of activities that Babs and I have deemed to be the most important use of my time. I'm a coach. I can create new material for the workshops, and I'm a good performer on podcasts and videos and a very few live presentations throughout the year. And so that's it. So those are all my habits. And people say, aren't you overwhelmed by all the demands? And I said, well, I just don't get them. They're all filtered. I'm getting the sense that one of the themes here in terms of your habits, Dan, and this can be applied not only to successful entrepreneurs who are making gobs of cash, but even you as an entrepreneur, if you're just starting out, be less available. Mm -hmm. Be less available. And what does that say about social media, where people believe that being present on every single social media platform, constantly shrieking out to the world, getting involved in everybody's discussions and disputes, you're just saying... Leave all that to the other people and you focus on what's important by well, being less available. Because that's something any entrepreneur, it doesn't matter if no. your company makes 10 bucks a year or 10 billion a year, be less available. Is that Yeah, well, I think, distilled? first of all, there's a sales job that the electronics people, everybody who's involved in electronics communication, has sold that there's something immoral about not being available. Okay, well, that's not serving my purposes, that's serving their purposes, you know. So when somebody tells me, anytime people use the word should. So for example, I have a rule at home that if somebody knocks on my front door after about six o'clock at night, I don't answer it. And the reason is they're not knocking on the door for my benefit, they're knocking on the door for <laughs> their benefit. That's right. So they said, well, you know, that's not really very friendly. And I said, well, I wasn't looking to make a friend. So you know, <laughs> I got lots of friends, I said, but some stranger who knocks on my door after six o'clock at night is probably not a friend. They're not bringing you anything. They're not bringing they're me, coming to take not, not bringing in, I gave at the office. You know, and everything. So the, I think that we're learning in this world where, you know, theoretically, you can be virtually connected all the time to vast numbers of people that you got to rely on common sense about this. For example, I'm in, you know, about a year and a half experiment of not watching television at all. So except for the second half of three football games over the last 17 months, I haven't watched any television. And they say, not, any, not Netflix? And I said, 
I'll start that again. I haven't watched any television. <laughs> and they said, well, what about Netflix on uh, computer? I said, I don't like watching Netflix on my computer. And what I've noticed is that there's been some real impacts now because I've been with it long enough to tell what the impacts are. And one of the things is I'm not sensing any crises in the world. I'm not sensing any conflict. You know, in my everyday world, I'm not sensing world conflict, world crises, or anything. And I'm coming back to the notion that, except for the news media and the entertainment media, there would be no conflict and crises in the world, that this is all generated. Of course it is. For them to actually get you emotionally engaged with yeah. something such that you would make a purchase of something. Or just click something in a fit of rage. If we get off the computer for a little while and we go out and talk to our friends and neighbors, you might notice that the world is a much more peaceful and harmonious place than a lot of people would have you believe. Yeah, well, I'm on the computer all the time and I'm a big internet fan, but it's mostly written articles that I'm looking for because it's a wonderful medium if you're a reader because they archive everything and they cross-relate everything. And if you approach it properly, like, you know, Google, I mean, Google just gets better. I've noticed from year to year that I can write a question and the answer I get from Google is more useful from one 12-month period to the other. So I don't have any pro or con attitude towards any technology. I said, does it fit in with my purpose? And that's a habit. I always ask my question, am I interested in this? And I said, well, is it interesting to what I'm trying to achieve? So I think you have to be more focused. And I love what you said there, that if you're not available, that means that the value of your time just went up. Through the roof. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's the scarcity, right? All right, Dan, I can bring this home with a little anecdote. We were talking about Chris Voss wrote just an absolutely incredible book called Never Split the Difference. I've read it twice now. I consider myself very lucky to grab a few moments with Chris down at Joe Polish's Genius Network last year. So I was in the market for a new car right around the time that I was reading that book. And after having read just the first three chapters, I went into the negotiation and using the techniques and tips that Chris Voss had explained, which is, you know, empathy and mirroring and whatnot. I was in discussions with this poor guy who had no idea what he was in for. And I just used what Chris had written in the first three chapters. And I watched as the gentleman talked himself down by about $5,000. So when I saw Chris down at Genius Network, I, I said, Chris, I think I owe you five grand. And he said, why would you owe me five grand? So I told him the story and he goes, at a boy and big high five. <laughs> so if you have not heard of Chris Voss or yeah. the book Never Split the Difference, cannot recommend it enough. And yeah, and there's a lot of just, uh, I mean, he trained for a very spectacularly difficult type of situation as a law enforcement FBI agent, you know, the life and death situations. And he had to train himself to come across, as he said, a late night DJ being soothing and reassuring the hostage taker and making the hostage taker feel safe and everything like that. The habits that he developed, he said, they didn't come naturally to me. He says, I had to learn these mm -hmm. habits. And I think we live in a world where it's a brand new world. You know, this world did not exist 50 years ago when, you know, I was a teenager, you know, so there's a lot of new skills, but there's some basic ones of, for the most part, don't manage yourself, have other people manage you so that you can play 100% with your mind on the big goal. And then know that your role is actually inspiring other people to join you on a team to actually create very important measurable projects. And the other thing is that 
everybody wants your time, so that must mean that your time is really valuable. So make it really scarce that you have to really make me a great offer if you want any of my time and my attention. I think these are general rules. And I think certainly our podcasts, I mean, we're recognizing that it's completely free choice for anybody to be a podcast listener. And therefore, our concern is that you giving us your time is going to be a valuable use of your time. Simplify to multiply. Thanks, Dan. Mm-hmm.